0: We're in a race to make value work.
1: Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency based framework for health value, Race to Value listeners, this week we have a very special guest. Returning to the Race to Value podcast is Dr. Robert Pearl, one of the most influential physician leaders in our country. He's truly a healthcare legend. He's known as the former CEO of the Kaiser Permanente Medical Group, and he's the author of two best-selling books. I mean, these are are books that are right on my bookshelf, right behind me, and they're my go-to resources. You have Mistreated why we think we're getting good health care, and why we're usually wrong, which is just a complete analysis of everything that's systemically broken in our system, and how do we go about fixing it. And then there's his newest book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. Dan, I couldn't be happier to have Dr. Pearl joining us again
2: this week for a special episode. I'm so excited to be bringing Dr. Pearl back. You know, he's written this series of articles for Forbes, called Breaking the Rules of Healthcare, where he talks about things like the culture, the primary care and technology, all these things that need to be changed. And we dive into all of these topics with him and more. And it's just a fantastic conversation. I really look forward to sharing it with our listeners. Well, let's go ahead and
1: break those rules as we bring on a disruptive innovator, Dr. Robert Pearl, as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Well, Dr. Pearl, as we start our conversation today, I wanted to just walk through the history of medicine and the culture that we're dealing with in terms of the dynamics. And and then, you know, how is the pandemic positioning us to change physician culture and really create a more effective industry that's improving outcomes and lowering costs?
0: Well, good morning. And thank you, Eric, for that very kind introduction for anyone who is interested, they can get more information on my website, robertperlmd.com And much of what I'll be saying this morning is not new to the members of this collaborative. It's what you live every day as you try to drive value in American healthcare. And I view COVID-19 as a seminal event. I have the privilege of teaching in the Stanford University School of Business. And there we call it a strategic inflection point, a moment in time when the world changes in very powerful ways. And it never goes back to where it was before. It doesn't change in an instant or even a year. It takes about five to 10 years, like a boulder rolling down a mountain. As it progresses, it gains momentum and never ever returns to the place where it began before the change occurred. And it's during these strategic inflection points that the rules change, rules in every industry. And if you have any doubt about that, just think about how COVID-19 has changed our sense of where you work and whether you drive to work and whether you can work from home and a hybrid model. And we don't quite yet know the new rule that will exist, but we know it will be very different than the past. And I'll be speaking today about four sets of rules that I believe will change in the upcoming years and that you will be helping to lead the process of making that occur. These will be the normative rules, the cognitive rules, the technological rules, the economic rules that govern American medicine. Before I do that, let me begin by looking at two factors, the system of American medicine and the culture of American medicine. And like the two snakes that are round around the staff and the caduceus, that symbol that Doctors wear on their white coats that adorn the covers of textbooks. They're intimately related and impossible to separate. And if you try to do so, you're likely to get bit. The American healthcare system is similar to a 19th century cottage industry. It's fragmented with doctors working independently, unconnected with each other, unable to exchange information. Hospitals scattered across the community. It's paid on a piecemeal basis. We call it fee-for-service. The more you do, the more you get paid, whether it adds any value or not. The technology is left over from the last century, although in actuality it's left over from the one before, for the way that doctors most commonly exchange information is on the fax machine, an 1834 invention. And it's relatively leaderless. There's no one capable of making major changes to improve operation, to raise quality, to guarantee that the care is the best for all Americans. And the consequences are what we would expect. We are not doing very well, we spend twice as much as nearly every nation in this world. $11,000 per person in the United States, it's nine in Switzerland, seven in Germany, every place else, less than half of what the US spends. Yet according to the Commonwealth Fund, will last, last in overall outcomes, last in life longevity, with the highest childhood mortality, the highest maternal mortality, and the greatest number of medical mistakes that otherwise could lead to good care. We do not do very well, and yet we tell ourselves often that we provide the best care in the world. So all came to a head in December of 2019, a few months before the coronavirus was recognized in the United States. And at that time, the federal government released a report. It said that healthcare over the next decade would rise 5 to 6% a year. And remember, that's a compound rising $2.5 trillion in total, bringing American healthcare above $6 trillion a year without any promise that it would get better. You know, I thought to myself, we spent this money addressing social determinants of health or helping those with chronic disease to avoid the complications or even just investing in pre-kindergarten school education or looking at opportunities to increase health awareness. We had so many opportunities to use this money in very effective ways. And I waited. I waited for the medical societies of this nation to step forward and ask the same question. And I waited. And nothing happened. You see, in American medicine, we assume that costs are going to go up 5 to 6% a year without any requirement that the quality go up at least as much and preferably more As I travel around the United States, talking to hundreds of physicians, I became aware of this physician culture. It's like gravity, it's invisible, but you pay no attention to it at great personal peril. And like fish who are surrounded by water and unaware of its existence, the same is true. Of doctors in medicine. And by culture, what I mean are the values, the beliefs, the norms, the ones we learn in medical school and residency, the ones we carry with us throughout our careers, the ones that we learn not in the lecture halls or textbooks, but by watching those more senior to us. It's this culture of medicine that I believe in some ways has held us back. From changing the rules in the past, but COVID 19 will no longer make that possible.
2: Dr. Pearl, you've talked about how powerful culture is. And and if it's so powerful and it's driving in the wrong direction, how do we actually change it? What do we need to understand about history, the history of this culture? so that we can make meaningful progress in changing the culture and making improvements that will drive value-based care.
0: To understand culture, let's look at Vienna, Austria, 1850. Ignaz Semmelweis has just been appointed the head of the maternity service and he's appalled. The mortality is 18% and he's embarrassed because the adjacent facility one run by nurse midwives has a mortality rate two thirds lower. At the time, the leading cause of death was puerperal fever, an infection of the uterus following delivery had spread systemically and killed the mother. And the etiology was said to be my asthmas, these smelly particles drifting up from the streets below. But someone asks to ask himself, why should the women laboring in our hospital who are breathing the same air as the people laboring in the adjacent facility die so much more often. Now advances in medicine often happen by serendipity and a colleague of Semmelweis's nicks his finger while doing an autopsy. He goes on to develop a local infection systemic spread, a disease ad- identical to corporal fever. And Semmelweis hypothesizes maybe there's something that doctors are carrying either on their hands or the leather aprons they wear to protect their three piece suits that is carrying something causing this disease. And he says that going forward, before any doctor enters the delivery area, he would have to change his leather apron, put on a clean one and dip his hands into chlorinated water. And lo and behold, within a month, mortality drops from 18% to less than two, 90% improvement. He writes it up in the leading medical journal, writes letters to the attorney service directors across the world, and guess what happens? Nothing. No one changes practice. Now, if I asked you why is it so hard in American medicine to make progress today, you'd probably give me a set of reasons that involve Time and money, but it didn't take any time to dip your hands in chlorinated water. It didn't cost any money to change your apron. Now, this is the culture of medicine. You see, at the time, physicians were seen as healers. The idea that they were carrying disease causing women to die simply was unacceptable. You see, culture is about hierarchy, status, esteem, respect, and anything that challenges that is not going to be acceptable. And it'll be 50 more years before doctors change their practice, and it would take a Louis Pasteur to make them do so. But now we leap forward to today, and what do we see? The most common reason why inpatients die in the United States today is a hospital-acquired infection. The etiology we all know is C. difficile, Clostridium difficile. And every physician understands that it's not transmitted in the air like coronavirus. It's carried on the hands of people. And yet surveys show that across the United States, in leading hospitals, doctors failed to wash their hands one in three times. In um, Seville time, aprons were the symbols of expertise. The more blood, the more pus, the more guts, the more experienced the individual was. And the idea of taking off that leather apron would be the equivalent today of a doctor leaving an academia, that long white coat, replacing it with a medical student short coat. These are the kinds of things that simply don't happen, not because they take time, not because they are expensive, but simply from a cultural perspective, because what matters so much is how we see ourselves And as a result, in American medicine today, we don't see many of the problems that we are responsible for. We understand the problem with insurance companies. We understand the problems with the government or with regulations. But we fail to see it, and coronavirus has exposed that.
1: Well Dr. Pearl, you know, I know physicians in our society are looked at as modern day heroes. And you know, I wanted to ask you uh, if you could provide some additional perspective on the culture of medicine and and, and how that's created this perception and then how do we best align the performance of the medical profession with the with the actual virtues and the perceptions to which society holds physicians so dearly?
0: But before I go there, let me start with another part. Let me talk about another part, which is that culture is not bad. Don't get the impression that it is all negative. In fact, culture is very positive. It is what makes being a physician so remarkable. It is what makes practicing in medicine so heroic. And all we need to do is to look at what happened during coronavirus. Early on, patients were coming to the ER requiring hospitalization with this infectious disease that was killing people. And we didn't understand very much about it. There was not enough protective gear. But doctors still came 12 and 24 hours at a day. They donned garbage bags when there were not gowns. They put on solid lids when there were not masks. They passed tubes from the mouth into the lung, knowing full well that as that tube went through the vocal cords, the patient would always cough, spewing virus in their face. And they did it anyway. It is the same culture that has driven innovation and change and made American medicine be at the cutting edge of experimentation and innovation and change. But as I said, it also has allowed us to not see what is going on. The same repression and denial that doctors had to use to come to that ED and take care of the patient early in the pandemic allowed them to not see some of the things that were happening. As an example, 88% of the people in New York City hospitalized who went on to die from coronavirus had two or more chronic diseases. Across the United States today, we don't do a very good job. The leading factor accounting for these patients having to be admitted to the hospital was the association with hypertension. Across the US today, we control that 55% of the time. When I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, we controlled it over 90% of the time. We had excellent physicians, but so did the community. It's the culture that sits in place. It's a culture that elevates prevention, not just intervention. A culture that elevates primary care, and not just the specialist who unblocks the coronary artery but the doctor who prevents it from becoming occluded in the first place. And what we don't see is that in American medicine today, that hierarchy that exists does not correlate with outcomes. And we know that adding 10 primary care physicians to a community increases longevity two and a half times more than adding 10 specialists. And yet we continue to train a disproportionate number of specialists and continue to value them at a higher point reflected in the economics of American healthcare today. We also know that the coronavirus What we saw was that Black patients were two to three times more likely to die from COVID-19 than white patients. And if I asked doctors why that is, they would tell me that Black patients worked in jobs that they couldn't stay home and do over Zoom. They had to go into the office, take buses and trains to get there, which were incubators for infection, lived in multi-generational houses with children, passing it to adults, the grandparents. And they'd all be right. And yet at the same time, what we know is that when patients early in the pandemic came to the ER with exactly the same symptoms, and there was a shortage of testing kits, physicians tested the Black patients half as often as the white patients. And they gave 40% less pain medication. And if we had enough time, we could talk about the 30% of things that doctors do today that add no value. We could talk about the surprise billing, the leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States. We could go through a whole list of areas, every one of which has a systemic reason to exist, but every one of them we ignore in a culture that teaches us actually, as medical students and residents, to deny and repress those things We don't want to see those things that fail to elevate the status of our profession, those things that would require us to treat patients in a different manner.
2: Dr. Pearl, you've been talking about the rules that need to change to reposition physician culture so that we can improve our healthcare system and And a couple of these rules you mentioned are economics and technology. And can you share more about these? And what are some of the other aspects we should be considering?
0: If I told you a day ago that the company that leases or rents the most cars would own no cars, if I told you that the company that... Is the most number of houses who don't know houses, or the company that provided the greatest amount of content would produce no content? You'd say I was out of my mind. And today it's called Uber, Airbnb, and Google. The norm that we have is that the best care is provided in a physician's office. This is the rule. And what we learned during COVID-19 is that it's often not true. Seven years ago, I wrote an article in Health Affairs. I talked about the 12 million virtual visits we were doing in Kaiser Permanente. And I predicted that 30 to 40% of what we did in the physician's office would be done virtually in the future. And for five and a half years, nothing happened. And then suddenly when this virus threatened us As physicians threatened our staff, 60 to 70% of the care we provided became virtual. And the thing about virtual care is it's more convenient for the patient. Think about virtual care, it's immediate. If it's the middle of the night and a child has a fever and a parent doesn't know what to do, that ability to access a physician over video allows that parent either to go back to sleep, comfortable that their child is safe, or to know that the patient needs to go to the ER. But otherwise, the family finds itself adrift. Going forward, the rule is going to be that in certain circumstances, those that do not require a physical exam or the insertion of a needle or a knife, that it's gonna be seen as better care So why don't doctors want to do it if we have this evidence? Again, as physicians, they'll talk about issues of interstate licensing, and they'll talk about Medicare payments. And again, they're all true. But even when those restrictions were lifted, we watched the numbers of virtual visits decline. It's now under 20% if you exclude mental health, which has a very high rate of virtual visits is 11%, of course, this country. And it has to do that in the culture of medicine, we elevate the office. It's where we have our name on the door. We call the area that you walk into a waiting room. It defines whose time is more important and that rule will change as the consumer becomes more demanding and expecting of different care. And we in medicine are gonna have to respond not by seeing a virtual visit as being less valuable, recognizing the many ways it can allow expertise to be brought in from thousands of miles away. It can allow a specialist to come into the room while the patient's still seeing the primary care physician. It can allow a group of primary care physicians to link together in a way that they can provide 24 by seven care so that at five or six o'clock each night, doctors across the community don't simply close their offices and tell patients to go to the ER, but offer care that is better, more immediate and more continuous. Well, let's look at the economics of healthcare. This is an area that all of you are very knowledgeable about. We've set ourselves the rule is that fee-for-service is the best way to provide care. We have so much data that says that it's not, that capitation aligns incentives, that capitation allows physicians to benefit when they prevent disease, avoid complications of chronic disease, when they are able to provide care in ways that is more convenient for the patient, with better outcomes and fewer medical errors, We understand that the rules of the past don't work. We have yet though to advance them into the future. And what we've seen over the past couple of years is the entrance into healthcare of a variety of organizations. On one hand, you have private equity. Private equity expects a return on investment within three years. And their strategy is to elevate that price by bringing together groups of physicians, by the way, paying 15 times the annual income to buy a certain percentage of the practice, and by able to consolidate and control the market to raise the prices and generate profit. And on the other end, we see private equity with a 10-year horizon. And what they're doing is they're coming in to healthcare And they're looking at opportunities, first to bring primary care together in a virtual way, then to expand it to specialty care. We saw Oak Street, a billion-dollar company of primary care physicians acquiring a company called Rubicon, a company that specializes in specialty care. We saw uh, 23andMe, a genetics company, acquiring Lemonade to be able to provide the primary care and specialty care We're seeing this evolution and how it's going to settle out and when it's going to settle out, we can't be sure. But the rules of the past are going to have to change
1: well, Doctor Pearl, you make a compelling case for all the issues we face. They're almost insurmountable in terms of uh, reshaping our healthcare system. And you know, you're writing the, this great series of, of articles right now in Forbes uh, called "Breaking the Rules of Healthcare," where you really get into all the various facets of what we need to do to reinstill a tradition of breaking tradition by innovation and reforming our culture, so we can best improve patient outcomes and create a more consumer-centric experience. Can you? Talk talk about some of these dynamics and how do we go about reshaping healthcare in the post-pandemic era?
0: So how is this change going to happen? I believe that in the post-coronavirus era, the pressure on American medicine is going to grow significantly. Remember, the federal government will have borrowed $8 trillion. States by law have to have balanced budgets and have added costs for both unemployment and for Medicaid small businesses, those that remain, the ones that by the way employ 155 million Americans, they burn through their savings. Everyone will be looking for ways to reduce expense. And I think that it is inevitable and maybe it will be over five years that we will make the movement from fee-for-service decapitation, from fragmentation to integration. We'll introduce technology, not technology like the operative robot that raises costs and has then been shown to improve outcomes, but approaches using artificial intelligence and algorithmic care and telemedicine that are gonna lower expense, make care more convenient to reshape care delivery in ways that currently don't exist. It could come in one of three ways. It may happen out of the medical system that exists today. And this is that private equity I was talking about. Groups of primary care physicians being brought together to create a virtual system of care bringing into the system specialists, not necessarily in the local community, but across the nation, specialists able to provide immediate consultation, centers of excellence where care can be provided, possibly even globally. These will be the changes that could happen if it's led by American medicine. The second place that it could get led is by American businesses. We've already seen this. PBGH, which used to be the Pacific Business Group on Health, now the, the Purchaser Group on Health, has created an entire piece of the organization to look at the ways that care can be reduced. This is the organization of the largest businesses across the United States. They're starting in the pharmacy arena, but there's no question that they too will move into care delivery, or it could come from a new entrant. You know, three years ago, Haven was formed with Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Chase. And as part of that process, I wrote an article which I said that anyone who believes that Jeff Bezos is creating this, as he was saying at the time, simply for the one million employees of these three companies as a not-for-profit, probably also believes that Amazon only sells books. No, this was gonna be Jeff Bezos, Amazon taking over healthcare the same way that they take over retail. I saw a statistic recently that 90% of us will use Amazon for our holiday shopping. And I think in his mind, he'd like to see 90% of us use Amazon for part of our healthcare delivery. I can't be sure where it will come through, who will lead the process, but I can be sure that the rules of the past will not be the rules of the future, that the rules of the pre-pandemic period will not be those of the future. It would be difficult to change. We're going to all go through Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief as we give up what we learned in medical school and residency about how best to provide care. Some of us are in denial now. Others are angry, sending out tweets and texts with exclamation points in all capitals. Some are bargaining, joining up with hospital systems and uh, insurance companies to provide care, to get protected. But in the end, none of this is going to work until the rules do change. And we're going to end up, and I fear, the period of depression that very comes from a recognition, but ultimately leads to acceptance. And that acceptance of change will be the opportunity to make American healthcare once again, the best in the world. A few years ago, I was the Oregon Health Sciences Building and I saw a sign across the top, it said quality, service, and cost. And below in the bottom, it said in small letters, pick any two. That was the best we could do in the 20th century but today we can do better in the 21st. We'll have to change the rules. We'll have to recognize the ones that exist today that are not optimal either for patient care or physician fulfillment. But I do believe that if we can do so, that we will move American medicine forward. Not necessarily where we thought it should go, but where it has to go.
1: Well, thank you. And I think what strikes me most about your commentary today is clearly you've made a compelling case that we need to change the rules to build and reshape the the healthcare industry for tomorrow. And I wanted to revisit your thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic and how that's really a flashpoint for change. It reminds me of the The John F. Kennedy quote about when you see the word uh, crisis written in in Chinese, it's composed of two characters. One is danger and another one's opportunity. And in, in your commentary today, you very much see the future as being one of opportunity and hope. As we think about changing the rules and reshaping healthcare, I want to just ask you about this accelerated path that we need to take towards digital transformation and how that really is one of the bigger opportunities we have to eliminate friction in the healthcare value chain and create this new era of patient consumerism. Can you speak a little bit about that, how we can use virtual care algorithms, build interoperability structures, and then really leverage data differently in terms of social determinants? and other data that's in the community. How can we use technology as a vehicle to help us reshape uh, healthcare for the future?
0: This is such an important area. The problems are so vast. The first one is we don't have the data. And why don't we have the data? We don't have the data because we don't have, as you say, interoperability. And why don't we have interoperability? Because we haven't gotten the Uh, manufacturers of the EHR systems to open their APIs and allow us to extract the information from all of the systems. But to me, interoperability is just a starting point because interoperability is a very complex, difficult process. What we really want to create is applications to extract and utilize that data. And we can't do that until we have the data. But technologically, if we could extract the data, if the APIs were open, we could accomplish just that. Now, most of us, when we want to do things in our lives, we use the apps on our phones. We don't actually use our computers these days. And Apple, which used to have closed systems, once they opened it up, now have half a million uh, apps available through their store. And I see the same thing potentially happening in medicine. Now, this is where the culture and the rules become problematic. Because what the data says is that, at least now in certain circumstances, artificial intelligence is better able than physicians to make diagnoses. We've seen this in uh, mammograms. We've seen that in some uh, difficult to diagnose uh, pneumonia cases. We've seen that with a variety of pigmented skin lesions. Artificial intelligence is a powerful tool. But it threatens us. Because it lowers our status in the hierarchy. And the same is true for algorithmic care. You know, in the 20th century, we really didn't understand the etiology of disease. We weren't certain the best way to take care of things. We now know in a vast number of areas, not every place. And yet, across the US, we do it inconsistently. The hypertension example is a great one 55% when organizations are doing it, 90%. We should be able to get to that level, and we could, with a combination of algorithmic care and a combination of uh, telemedicine to more frequently reach out to patients and a variety of wearable devices to record blood pressure on an ongoing type basis. The second problem is that we need to have cleaner data because any type of Artificial intelligence is only as good as the database that sits in place, and we don't have that today, but we could have it. We could have that if we were able to enter data from the medical examination that would be digitalized and consistent and certainly augmented with laboratory and wearable uh, input. There's so much more that we could do as physicians, and let me add a last piece onto it. You know, manufacturers these days are creating devices, EKGs as an example, or blood glucose monitorings, in which we generate a vast amount of information. And there's no physician who wants 100 EKGs or uh, rhythm strips being sent to his or her office or 100 different daily glucose numbers being provided. But we don't need to do that. We easily could have that done analyzed through technology and rather than expecting that the physician is going to decide how the patient was doing, often by the way, on every three or four month basis, we could tell the patient every day how they're doing. And if they're having problems, immediately connect them with the physician because they need the care. And if they're not having problems, essentially see them once a year if necessary because they're under full control. This is exactly what we did with implantable defibrillators. You know, That's the one device in which by law, uh, reports have to be provided to an agency. And rather than seeing the patient every three months, we saw them whenever they had a firing. It could be the day after they were seen the day before. If the device fired, there was a problem. And if it didn't fire, there wasn't a problem. And yet across American medicine today, we haven't changed the rules about how we take care of individuals. We need to evolve from an episodic calendar-based approach to one that is continuous, but we need to do it in a way that makes the life of the physician both possible, but I think also fulfilling. And I believe that technology offers that to us but it's gonna require actually multiple rules to change. One's about norms, one's about cognitive thinking, one's about um, technology, one's about economics.
1: Thanks so much for that commentary, Dr. Pearl. Uh, Certainly, I think all of us have been enlightened by how you're able to take such a complex issue and distill it down. I'd love to get your thoughts about taking it to the next level. So what we heard you say is that there's a major cultural issue going on. And if you really think about this cultural issue, a lot of it is that we focus a lot on the acute, not on the whole patient in really, you know, not focusing on longitudinal care. And that's something that's evolved over decades, if not centuries. And what's interesting is that when you look at the acute care in our country, we're actually pretty amazing at some of that. I mean, so I'll, you know, let me point that out. I mean, when you look at, total comprehensive uh, care overall, we're spending a lot more money, and on a population basis, we're obviously getting worse outcomes. So you have to think about the dichotomy of, on one hand, we're great, and on the other hand, we're not. So I really appreciate your comments on how to fix this, and I know there's a lot of system issues, there's the data, and obviously, you know, uh, you've spoken a lot about the cultural aspects, but there's also payment. And we have to be thinking about all these different components, essentially, that are impediments to changing what we do. So the question really becomes one of what really are the tangible steps or the ways that you see we could start to shift from the, this current reactive acute care system to something that's vastly different, especially given how prevalent EHRs are and how payment is so commonly rooted in fee-for-service.
0: I think the key step will be moving from FIFA service to capitation. Because as you point out, it's just very hard to be able to make these other changes when you know that you're going to have economic difficulties in doing it. And I think capitation becomes the start of that rock rolling down the mountain that I referred to early on. Because as soon, and by capitation, I don't mean a little bit of capitation. You can't do that. I mean, moving Fully towards capitation. That, of course, requires the insurers or the self funded employers or third-party administrators, whoever is going to be the source of the revenue, be willing to do so. Because once you are capitated, then, as you point out, the culture evolves. Because once you're capitated, you start to value prevention and avoidance of complications from chronic disease and you avoid medical errors. You look for ways to be able to avoid the heart attack, not simply to unblock that coronary artery or vo- avoid the stroke. You control the blood pressure better. You uh, look at blood lipids more frequently. It's not that every doctor doesn't do this. They just simply don't have the time because in the current reward system, it's a hamster running on a treadmill. Now I wanna make you know, a point. I love medicine. The best decision I've made in my life was becoming a doctor When I became took on administrative roles, it was a difficult problem because I did not want to give up the medical practice that I loved so much. So I write these books and I make these comments out of the love for the profession and admiration for the doctors. They are working way too hard given the dysfunctionalities in the system. And yet we cling on to this broken means of reimbursement. So that's what I see to be the first piece. And then when you capitate, you start to say, how do we come together to integrate that care? Because you recognize that although primary care creates probably 60, 70% of the value in medicine, the specialist accounts for 60, 70, 80% of the cost. And by bringing both groups together in a way that it's not I win, you lose, but we win together and you create a notion of group excellence, you start to say, you know, it's a specialist consults with the patients in the primary care physician's office. We don't need to see them in the specialist office. That's better at lowest cost. Today, that's not a possibility in a fee-for-service type world for people to do that very much. So I see that evolution starting there. And then you start to bring in the right technology. You don't want to advertise a robot in an operating room that you know has an increased quality and and it maximizes costs, you want to be able to do the things that are going to provide care more quickly, less expensively, higher patient satisfaction. Now you're talking telemedicine. Now you're talking about wearable devices. Now you're talking about tools using artificial intelligence to make the patient be better. You know, as doctors, we don't like to think about the patient as a consumer. In the 21st century, that's what they are. And this is where this evolution in rules needs to happen. That's where I believe that it can go. But as long as we're staying rooted in FIFA service, and we can argue about the edges, it's not nips and it's not macro, it's not 5% here and 3% here. It's an entire mentality. That's what strategy is about. How do you look at a problem and see it in a different way and in doing so come up with a superior solution? In the short run, Medicare Advantage has been an area that many people have been able to take advantage of and accomplish it. As I said, there's quite a number of organizations now being able to bring together primary care physicians, particularly in virtual type ways to start moving the ball But I'm hoping that the physicians and the organizations will be able to help that process move forward. I actually look to the business, to a business, I'll say physician profession uh, relationship to accomplish it. What we want as doctors to improve the health of patients and to improve the satisfaction of being a physician is exactly what employers want are having to pay the bill and who pay a consequence when their employees become sick and can't work. I think there's a natural synergy there, but we're going to have to break the rules in order to uh, realize the potential.
2: Dr. Pearl, thanks so much for those comments. I want to ask a follow-up question, building on what you've shared. You know, You've talked about the shift in the payment models and how that now all of a sudden allows a lot of other things to become possible. And I agree when you look at American medicine, physicians are overworked and overtaxed. And a lot of what they're doing is not adding value. And fundamentally, for a variety of reasons, you know, you've got primary care, which is the smallest component of payment, but it can have the biggest impact. And and those people are so overworked, they're unable to fully realize the potential that they have for delivering care. And when you take a step back, though, and kind of zoom out, you look at the delivery landscape. What I see is very few systems are fully invested. If you look at the capitation engine, like you alluded to earlier, it's the startups that are solely focused on capitation. So, you know, you've got Oak Streets, the Chen Meds, the One Medicals, Ioras, et cetera. Obviously there's a history of the heritage and healthcare partners and other groups in California and Kaiser, but fundamentally a lot of these startups haven't really scaled. They're working on it. They're moving forward, but you've got healthcare systems that are clearly very large dominant players And they're starting to move into capitation, but not in a significant way. So what do you think is going to be the way that this evolved when you've got these huge systems moving really slowly in the right direction? Yes, but at a glacial pace. And then you've got these startups that are moving like rapid fire, but they're so small. uh, It's not making a big enough dent in the marketplace. What do you think is going to happen and how will that evolve?
0: Part of why Kaiser Permanente has been able to be successful has been the fact that it includes not just the delivery system, which is the physician half of the organization, but also an insurance system, the Kaiser Foundation Health Plan. And it's this partnership of the insurer with the care provider working for common purpose that has allowed capitation to be effective, to allow... Quality to be number one out of a thousand programs across the U.S. to be serviced to be uh, 20 points better according to J.D. Power and Associates and cost to be 15 or so percent lower. The model clearly works. So now you got to ask the second question, okay, if Kaiser Permanente has been so successful, why hasn't it scaled? Because it hasn't. It's often failed in new regions. And the answer is that the model Again, this is the traditional rule of the 20th century. The model of the past is just too capital intense. It just costs too much to move into a new new geography. It just takes too long to attract a sufficient number of patients in a given area to hire enough physicians, particularly in the specialty area, and to be able to build the facilities and the hospitals needed. And in that transition, you just never get there because the outlay is so great, and the inflow may go better each year, but it's still, after a certain number of years, you just economically can't make it happen. That's why I think that the coronavirus has been such a game changer, why it is a seminal event, why it is a strategic inflection point, because what has become clear is gonna be the use of virtual care. Now think about it. If you don't have to have all those patients in a given area, but you can bunch them together in lots of different communities and you can leverage off things like urgent care centers and retail clinics and maybe have a small number of doctors in that area. If you can bring the best experts into the primary care physician's office while the patient is still there and solve the problem as we were able to do 40 to 50% of the time, think about how big that advantage is. And now what you need to do is to find a purchaser whether it's an insurance company, whether it's a self-funded business, who's willing to provide you with that opportunity. And particularly if we can overcome some of the issues that you mentioned around the electronic health record, now you have that possibility to make it happen. And it's why I think it will happen over, to say, not this year or next year, but over the next five to 10 years, because all the pieces finally are in place Now, it's not that they weren't in place before, as I say, I wrote about it seven years ago, but now that rule has been broken. The rule was telemedicine is bad medicine. And now we can't say that anymore because we all did it. And patients aren't gonna be rejecting it because they found the positive piece in it. So I think we're in a fertile ground, but I don't underestimate the resistance. The resistance coming from lots of directions, but culture being one of them, Systems being a second one of them, and the rules of the past handed down to us from before, handed down to us by physicians who are very comfortable being in a fee for service world. I think it's those rules that we're going to have to overcome, and that's a big issue. You know, we've been talking pay for value for how many years? The government's been pushing at it. We actually started this process in 1932 when various organizations came to try to address the unaffordability of healthcare. 1932 and President Roosevelt at the time had a proposal to actually move to capitation at that point. And when the AMA resisted it, he traded that for social security. And you look at the presidents across time, Nixon, Clinton, Obama, Trump, I can't name a more diverse group of individuals, but all four of them have pushed towards pay for value. I think what's different this time is that the coronavirus era has made the key tool. Telemedicine is not the solution. It's the facilitator. It's what allows these other changes to happen. And I do believe that it will occur. And I'm hoping that it will come from inside medicine. Because if not, I think the system that we put in place might be beneficial for the companies, but it won't be necessarily beneficial for the providers of the care, who are the physicians and the nurses delivering that every single day.
1: Well, Dr. Pearl, I think you've made a very clear and articulate case that we have to improve American healthcare and we must break the rules to do that. Truly disruption is gonna be needed to reshape our system for tomorrow. Thank you for your leadership for our country and everything that you do to evangelize and advocate for value-based care and transformation. Again, Dr. Pearl, thank you so much
0: today for your important commentary. Anyone who's interested in more information, again, my website's robertpearlmd.com. I welcome people's thoughts, perspectives. I once again believe that together we can make American medicine once again, the best in the world. That's what everyone wants to do. And let's do it together and make it happen. And I thank you in advance. For your leadership and energy, passion and success.